It's good to be with you again this morning. By my count, Camper, you have 98 more minutes for your 30s. Enjoy it. Go ahead and turn to Revelation 21. We're going to be reading in Revelation. Before we get to that, just by way of missions moment, I do want to (coughs) update you on how things are going in Richmond with the Richmond Center for Christian Study. If you were here, I think it was July when I uh, filled the pulpit at that time, I um, updated you on this new nonprofit in Richmond, about two and a half years old, called the Richmond Center for Christian Study. And uh, basically what the study center is all about is being used of God to bring further gospel transformation to the greater Richmond area with a special focus on uh, UR students, but others as well and those throughout Richmond uh, by fostering serious consideration and discussion of a biblical worldview and how that worldview bears on every area of life and culture. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very important. It's very meaningful. So I'm really enjoying it and thankful for it. And um, basically, the four things we do are bring in speakers, uh, offer courses, internships specifically for University of Richmond students, and once we get enough funding, uh, a resource center uh, there for the students and the community. I want to highlight those last two things, the internship for UR students and the resource center. We're about to send out a newsletter probably this (coughs) coming week where I'm highlight the internship just because that's really what I'm most excited about this semester. We're two years into things uh, with the internship, and this, this year is a particularly good and strong uh, year for uh, the student interns. We have a, a class of 12 student interns I'm very thankful for, and basically what we're doing with the uh, internship is we're taking their school year and we're chopping it up into four quarters. And for each quarter, we're looking at one of our four categories, worldview, apologetics, culture, theology. Another way to say it is we're basically asking four fundamental questions. What does the Bible say? That's theology. How do I know it's true? Apologetics. How does it bear on every area of my life? Worldview. And how does it bear on every area of the world we live in? That's culture. So that's a pretty holistic way to deal with it. So each quarter, they choose from a short selection of books or DVDs to dive into, write some responses to, and then we get together for further discussion. So it's, it's really neat just to see their reactions and see how they're growing and learning and how the gospel is really at work. Uh, I want to read a couple quotes to you just from some of the student postings. One freshman, when he's looking at the different resources are there and what the other students are posting in their responses, one freshman intern said this. He said, I have heard that the Bible is historically accurate, but I I have also heard that it is not. I would be very interested in finding out more about this. And that that fits. Uh, Certainly a lot of people have questions, but certainly at the college age, that's a very pivotal time in life. And so I'm thankful that we can be there to be part of the mix with um, that stage of life. Uh, Another intern wrote, because sin and evil are so deceitful, we need to be more proactive in equipping ourselves with the truth. And that's exactly right. Uh, Now, there are a number of resources we're using with them. I'm I'm very excited about the DVD resources. We've just injected those into the system, and they're really good just from a number of different uh, sources. There's uh, one called, Is Is God Really There? Kind of looking at it scientifically. Is the Bible reliable? Looking at it from the archaeological, historical perspective. Uh, Making Biblical Decisions, looking at ethics with John Frame. 
um, the Apostles' Creed, looking at systematic theology from Third Mill Ministries with Richard Pratt, killer resource. Uh, there's another one that has probably gotten more rave reviews from the interns than any other called The Truth Project. And again, uh, this probably isn't kosher, but if you have heard of The Truth Project, raise your hand. Yeah, fair amount. It's, it's, definitely, it's definitely out there. And, uh, you know, just reading the students' postings regarding this, one student wrote, Truth Project is awesome. And if you've seen it, you know it is. It's so helpful. Another wrote, I think this needs to be watched by everyone. Thought-provoking. I would agree with that. And the one that really hit me the most from the heart, after this tour, I found myself rejoicing. See, that's what you want to see on the college campus, isn't it? So it's pretty cool to see those kinds of uh, responses and interactions. So I'm excited about that, and I'm thankful. Now, regarding um, the Resource Center, uh, we're a nonprofit. Of course, that requires funding, and we're, we're working on that. And basically what that's going to be is it's going to be a place where you do have different resources, books, audiobooks, videos regarding the things that we're talking about. Uh, it'll be a place of hospitality where students and others from the community can come and inquire and discuss and read up or listen, those kinds of things. Um, we've got about 15 UR professors that are ready to come and be part of the speaking lineup. So we've been working on that relationship front, even though we don't have that resource center yet, but we're getting there. Um, video and discussion times, moving discussion times, children's reading time, all those crazy kinds of things. So I, I look forward to it. So be praying for us about that. And uh, as you know, with uh, RUF and other uh, different outreaches that you're uh, involved with, it does require funding. We're there, not quite there yet. So if you are interested in being a part, uh, definitely let me know. I have information trifolds as well. Most of our support base is made of people that contribute $50 or less per month. So it's very wide. I'd rather have it wide than narrow and deep. It's more stable that way. But the point is, most people just give a little bit. Some give $10 a month. Some give 100 It spans the spectrum. If you'd like to be a part, let me know. I'm excited about what's being built. So it's pretty cool. Um, and like I say, in terms of content, one of the things we deal with with the students and with the community is this whole idea of worldview. And I really appreciate the concept of worldview because it really cuts against the grain of the thinking of our culture, which is much more fragmented. You know, you have your relationship life, you have your financial life, you have your church life, you have, you know, whatever the case may be. And the reality is life is one whole. The world is one whole. Reality is one whole. And the question is, how are you going to see it all? What's the lens through which you're going to see it? And of course, if it's really true that God made this world and us to live in it, then we need to see the whole through his perspective. That's worldview thinking. That's a biblical worldview. So you could ask that question of anything. Uh, what is a biblical worldview of sexuality? What's a biblical worldview of finances? What's a biblical worldview of in other words, how does God, the one God who made all things, how does he see all the different parts of what he made? Reality is unified. It just makes sense. And tonight, oh, tonight, where am I? I speak at night a lot of times. This morning, we are going to look at a biblical worldview of the church. How does God see his own church? So I'm going to give you a taste of what we do in terms of worldview. Now, it might surprise you to learn about me that uh, growing up I was very cynical against the church. <laughs> uh, you might not expect an, that to be the case from an ordained guy, director of a Christian studies and all this kind of stuff, doing RUF before and all these kinds of things. Cynical against the church. Um, 
Like Camper, I uh, am from Georgia originally in the Deep South, where if you know anything about the Deep South, you know that everybody's a Christian, but not everybody's a Christian. It's this weird kind of thing. I see a lot of heads nodding. That's good. Um, <coughs> now, so part of the reason for my cynicism is I think it's just in my blood. I'm very analytical and skeptical by nature, uh, maybe partly due to the fall. I don't know. And, but, but the other part is, I think, the nature of the Deep South. There's a lot to be cynical about, you know, where, you, where there is hypocrisy. And, of course, I don't see it in myself. I just see it in, in people around me. <laughs> but that's, that's how I grew up. And... Um, and the truth is, there are a lot of reasons to be cynical about the church. Uh, there's, uh, you know, you think about the crusades of the past, you think about these other atrocities, you think about, uh, that's an interesting discussion just from a historical perspective to kind of look at the crusades, but just leave that aside. But just basically the crusades of the, of the past, there's some negative in that baggage. Uh, you have the scandals of today that hit the news from time to time, often regarding the church. <sighs> And that's one of the big reasons why uh, I grew up cynical. And we just have to be honest, there's a lot to be cynical about. But you know, when I was in college, I see a lot of college students here, and, but others as well. Uh, the ministry I was involved with in RUF uh, in college, God really used that to revolutionize my thinking in two fundamental ways. One, and that is that unified worldview approach to see all of life through the grid of Scripture. That was revolutionary to me. And the other is to love the church and stop being cynical against it. And, and that, was, that was really a, something that God used to turn me upside down. And basically, God used a series of sermons from our campus minister at Mercer University where he's basically pointed out, you know what, you're right, the church is really messed up. Interestingly, the Bible is very honest about that. You might expect that the Bible, God's book, might kind of try to hide that, kind of clean it up, make it look good. It's just... It's just brutally honest. Uh, you see, in, in the Old Testament, for example, you see the church killing her own prophets. That's pretty messed up. They're sent by God. The church reacts by killing them. In the New Testament, for example, in 1 Corinthians 5, you have an example, ethically, of a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. And to make it worse, the church is proud of it and boasts about it. What? That's just pretty, that's just pretty messed up. But what really struck me, especially in my college years, was, yeah, of course God's aware of this. God's all-knowing, and he's honest. He reveals it all in Scripture. He's brutally honest about that. But nonetheless, God's view of the church is that he sees the church as his radiant bride. What? How can that be? How can God see this messed up institution as his radiant bride? It seems kind of contradictory. But at that moment, it struck me that if this is how God sees the church, despite all of her many flaws, what right do I have to see her as any less? And my cynicism melted away. It's, it's interesting that, you know, as an apologetic matter, when someone might say, well, I really don't want to have anything to do with the church because it's so messed up. Our gut reaction is to say, oh, well, the church really isn't that bad. Look at all, this, all the good that it's done through history and all these kinds. And there's actually something to be said for that. We could actually go that route. But it's interesting the route that the Bible tends to go more times than not is, is not to try to hide any of how the church is messed up and say, well, yeah, it's probably worse than you think. Um, but she's my radiant bride, and 
That's how I see her. So it was really revolutionary to me. And God calls us to copy him and to see her and embrace her in precisely the same way. That just undercuts all of that, and, and it's more foundational. So in Revelation 21, as we come to our text, God shows us a picture of his radiant bride. And that's what we're going to read about. And I have a two-part goal for you this morning. If you are not in love with the church of God, fall in love with her, even as God is. If you are already in love with his church, fall in love with her all over again. And I pray that God will use this text from Scripture to accomplish that. So let's read Revelation 21. We're going to read verse 2 and then hop down to verse 9 and go through 21. Hear God's word. Revelation 2.21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then down to verse 9. <coughs> One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the, with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. <coughs> it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. <coughs> the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your work in this world through Christ. We thank you for your work in our hearts through your spirit. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us and uh, carrying out your work uh, through your word. And we pray, Father, that you would move in our hearts by your spirit to adopt uh, your view of your own people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe uh, it's either upcoming or recently. I think it's recently somebody actually preached on this very same text. Is that right? Is that, was that recent? Was it? The verse is right. 
<laughs> oh, okay, so adjacent to each other. All right, good enough, good, so we're not overlapping. I was just going to say, even if we are overlapping, it really doesn't matter, because you can get 50 sermons of really good, solid stuff out of the same text, because God's Word is that, reach, that rich and that deep, so we're cool, no problem. Um, now, let's just look at how this text begins. Let's just dive in and see what this text has to say about uh, the church. The first thing we notice from verse 2 is just simply that the bride is introduced. And look with me in verse 2 to see what it says. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So he's, John's painting this picture for us, essentially, of a bride walking down the aisle prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And it makes me think back to when Genevieve and I were married back in Austin, uh, Texas, back in 2003. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. <coughs> Eight years in. Um, and uh, there are a number of reasons I married Genevieve. It most, most centrally is her heart for God, by the way. That's the core reason you ought to marry anybody, FYI. Uh, more on that later if you want. Now, um, of course, there are other reasons, too. But um, one of the reasons I married her is just because uh, she's, she's very personable, very friendly, very engaging, uh, and spontaneous. And you never quite know exactly what you're going to get. So it makes life kind of fun. So kind of adventurous. It's never, never boring. So that's good. And um, I remember on our wedding day, I was standing up front, of course, watching and waiting for her to come down. And she began to come down the aisle, as you would expect. But then about halfway down, all of a sudden, it struck her that all of her friends were around, and they had gathered to see her, and she couldn't contain herself. So rather than looking at me and coming forward, she broke that off and proceeded to say hi. And she's walking down the aisle, and music's playing, saying hi to her friends, and even worse, walking down the, the rows to say hi to people. I've never seen that before, both ways. And then about three-quarters of the way, she realizes, oh, yeah, I'm getting married. So she gets back and starts coming my way. So as I saw that, I thought to myself, that's why I married you right there. That's it. So, and as she's coming my way, as you would expect, the groom is looking at her, and my face is just beaming, watching my bride come down the aisle. God's face beams as he sees his church coming down the aisle. That's the picture of Scripture that I want to unpack for you. And we already get that sense here in these verses in Revelation 21, because he makes a big deal out of just saying, come, look, let me show you the bride. Come. It's a big deal. That's the way he talks. Again, you see it in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, last, uh, of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, come. He's saying this again. He just said it in verse 2. Or at least John was writing, you know, showing us the bride. And here the angel actually says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. This is a big deal, just presenting the bride. Now, what is the bride? Then after the bride is introduced, the bride is then described. And we see the bride in this chapter presented as a glorious, brilliant city, massive, beautiful, in perfection. It's, it's amazing how it's presented. 
Now, for the rest of the sermon, I'm not going to unpack for you why he chose topaz and jacinth and amethyst and, you know, all these kinds of <coughs> things. Maybe you can get some things out of some of those kinds of uh, details, but, but we have to remember what kind of literature we're dealing with. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, like Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament, deals with grand, cosmic, big picture type stuff. So it's very interested in the big pictures. Uh, and I think that's the most helpful level to really tackle this at. So, and it's very symbolic, okay? It's okay to say some things are symbolic in the Bible because it's, it's according to the genre, some things are intended to be that way, right? You just have to know the nature of the writing you're looking at. Um, but the bride is presented as this large, brilliant, perfected city, and that's how God sees the church, as this magnificent, this magnificent bride. Look at what he says in verse 11, referring to the church. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. And down in verse 19, the foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of of precious stone. And that's a picture of how God sees his church. Now, that's, that's interesting and encouraging and exciting, but that's how God sees the church in days yet to come. Because we are talking about Revelation, right? Let's talk about how God sees the church in the future, right? Well, yes, but what's interesting, and I think even more encouraging and meaningful, is that that is precisely how God sees the church right now. That's powerful. Um, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he's referring to the church, and he says this. He refers to the church, which is his body, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, there's some subordinate clauses there I want to kind of tease out. Let's read that again. And then we'll unpack it. Paul refers to the church, which is his body, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, you can kind of break that up into two parts. Two statements are being made here. One is that Christ, God in the flesh, fills everything in every way. And you know, he's, he's not being pantheistic here. He's not saying God is in that chair, God is in that rock, God is everything. You hug a tree, you hug God. It's not pantheism. Okay, but what he is saying is, God created everything, Christ created everything, being God himself, God sustains everything, and he, he fills everything, he gives everything its meaning and its purpose. Okay, everything is defined according to God. So in that way, Christ fills all in all, he fills everything. But then the other statement is, the church fills Christ. Uh, wait a minute. The church gives God his fullness? The church gives God his meaning and purpose? It sounds blasphemous to say that, right? Isn't that interesting how Paul says that? That the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. One thing we have to realize is uh, the fullnesses aren't necessarily identical going both ways. But the other thing we have to realize is there is solid meaning in the fullness nonetheless. Let me give you another illustration to kind of flesh this out. Before we got married, um, 
<laughs> when I wanted to communicate to Genevieve that I was really serious and I wanted to take things to the next level, I sent her a dozen roses to her work. She was a kindergarten teacher and uh, she received the roses at her work in her class and with, with her kindergarten students around, little boys and girls, and they were all excited to see what was going on. And she opened the note and she, she read the words that I had written to her, to the girl who fills my heart. <laughs> and uh, of course, the girls are like all in and gushing and think it's the wonderful thing, you know, the most wonderful thing, because they're already dreaming about the day when they'll get married. And uh, the guys are all like, ugh, yuck, you know. <laughs> so you have opposite reactions. But that's precisely what God is saying in the Bible about his church. In Ephesians 1, and 23, the church, which is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church fills God. In other words, you can imagine God saying to his bride, walking down the, down the aisle, you fill me. I am in love with my bride. I am head over heels for her. That is God's attitude towards his church, his messed up church. Isn't that amazing? The church who kills the prophets, the church who has ongoing problems of theology and ethics, the church, God is head over heels for his church. It's very counterintuitive. You see the same attitude reflected in 1 Peter 2.9 where the Apostle Peter says about the church, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, <coughs> that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And it's, it's precisely because God loves the church and is head over heels for her, that he is preparing her to be that radiant bride that we read about in Revelation 21. So it's because God is head over heels for her that he's working in her to make her that radiant bride. You see the same thing in Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. <coughs> that's, that's that wonderful chapter where Paul draws this parallel between husbands and wives and that greater cosmic relationship between Christ and the church. So, so it turns out marriages are actually intended to be a snapshot of something beyond itself. And this is what he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word <coughs> and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless conjures up that image of Revelation 21 again, doesn't it? Now, a couple necessary implications to tease out here from this passage. Number one, God does not love the church because she is holy, because she's not. And, and that's a necessary implication from the text, because it says that Christ loved the church and, and even died for her, gave himself up for her for the explicit purpose of making her holy. What that means is she wasn't holy yet. If you're doing something to, make, to bring about a change, the change hadn't happened yet. So he's head over heels for this thing that's already messed up in order to make her that radiant bride. He loves her despite the fact that she is not holy. That's refreshing. 
That's liberating. It's comforting. But because he loves her, he died for her to make her holy, and he continues to cleanse her so that she will be that radiant church we see in Revelation 21. Okay, so we get it. God is in love with his bride, with his church. He's head over heels for her. He sees his church as that radiant bride in Revelation 21. Not just, that's not just his attitude in the future. That's his attitude right now. The church right now, that was present tense. The church already fills God. That's present tense right now. That's great. That's encouraging. But what do we do with it? How do we put it into practice? Two things. One is just simply realize that this is how God sees you right now as his church. That's how God sees you as his church. And even more practically, because God says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, like I tell my children, be copycats. You're, you're just a little copycat. Anything I do, you do. You're a copycat. I have little kids who, who certainly do that. Copy God. Whatever you see God doing, copy him as your father. So the second application is, as God is head over heels with his church and is, in, is deeply in love with his church, you be the same. Be head over heels in love with the church. Are you? Are we? And how, how do we see that fleshed out in our lives? How would we see that fleshed out in our lives if it were really true of us? Now, another important point regarding this is when we talk about the church, we're not merely talking about other Christians. We are. We are talking about other Christians. It's part of the body of Christ. We're not merely talking about other Christians. We're talking about the church corporate as an institution. Now, being an American, if you're American, most people probably here are, you probably reacted against that a little bit, kind of maybe involuntarily, as an institution. Because Americans tend to be very anti-institutional, defend our liberties against the institution and all the rest, against the king. <coughs> but this is the mindset of the Bible. It's talking about the church as an institution. Let me, let me illustrate this or, or back it up a little bit with Scripture. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, he's talking about the officers that God gave to the church. It was he, it was Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Okay, so he's talking about the church as those that have officers. That means this is an institution. It's got officers. Now, one of the implications of this is that Private, your, private relation, your personal relationship with God, private Bible reading and prayer is not where it's at. I'm going to get booted now, right? Just like I said before. Now, now that I've said that, let me back up a little bit. I'm not saying either or. I'm saying both and. Okay? We certainly have individual personal relationships with God. Certainly personal Bible reading and prayer are essential and, and profitable. But... It does seem from the way the Bible talks about the church and how God works in this world is that essentially the church is where it's at. It is the institution of the church that God uses primarily to grow his people. So it makes you wonder what we should make of this 
uh, American individualistic idea that I can have my personal relationship with God, personal, personal Bible reading prayer, whatever the case may be, and don't need to worry about the church so much. That's really outside the Bible's mentality. After all, it is in the church that, that all the means of grace are found. The word, the pre, especially the preaching of the word, as the uh, confession says, the sacraments, prayer, that's fundamentally how God is at work in this world. But we tend to be too individualistic today in our culture, and even in the church, because the culture does tend to seep into the church. <coughs> and most people here are probably members of the church. Some may not be, especially maybe college students, because that's a very transitional time, of course, in your life. But it's interesting that membership in the church is just an assumed part of the life of the Christian according to the Bible. That's just wrapped up in the church. That's just wrapped up in the Christian life. That's just wrapped up in how God sees things. It just kind of goes with it. And uh, any other way of thinking, which we tend to think of in our culture, is really foreign to Scripture. Let me show you one place where I get this. Uh, Acts 2, verses 40 and 41. This is uh, Peter's famous sermon right after Pentecost. And it says this, With many other words, he, Peter, warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. In other words, repent and embrace the gospel. Flee to Christ and be saved. <laughs> and then he makes this, uh, Luke makes this comment. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Okay, what do these different phrases mean? Those who accepted his message, that is, they believed the gospel and became Christians, were baptized. You know what that is. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They joined the church. Okay, just historically speaking, baptism is the gateway through which you enter the church. You, you join the church. That's, that's in part what it is. And it's interesting that he says it in one breath. Those who were saved joined the church. Bam. One piece. And, and you know, if, if the Bible could talk, if you could have a conversation, a verbal back and forth with the Bible, and you were to say to the Bible, you know what? I have my personal relationship with God through Christ um, and maybe, maybe I attend church because of some good things I get out of it, but I don't really see the need to really join and become a part of the church. The Bible would verbally respond to you and say, what? I don't even know how to process that. How can you, how can you, how can you separate those two things? That's, that's the way Acts 2, 40 and 41 talks. Those who accepted Peter's message of the gospel were baptized and joined the church. That's... Just, it's just sort of a package deal. Not that the church saves you, but again, the idea that you can have this individual relationship with God and not be a membership part of the, of the church is, is totally outside the categories of the Bible's way of thinking, and of course, then God's too. But it is, it is the church as an institution that God is head over heels for. That's just... That should be striking, given the culture that we live in. It is the church as an institution that we are called to embrace, join, and involve our lives with. And, of course, with those that make it up. Now, we're all at different stages in life. And, of course, we're all in the same boat. We all understand that, whether it be college or, or retirement or, or whatever the case may be. And it's easy to think, 
I'll get more involved in the life of the church later when I'm not so busy. Because, man, I got finals right now, right? Or I've still got kids in the house, or whatever the case may be, and we all understand that. But think about it. Think about what the implications of this are. If you are in love with someone, even as God is in love with his church, and he calls us to copy him in that way, can you really be satisfied with saying, I'll spend more time with you later? It doesn't fit. It doesn't, it doesn't flow out of that. The two don't go together. Okay, show of hands. Who has heard of Twilight Paris? Okay, it's okay if you raise your hand. It's all right. All right, raise your hand. Who likes Twilight Paris? Ooh, not near as many as first service. Okay, that's all right. That's all right. She sings this wonderful song that I love called How Beautiful. Who's heard of that? Okay. Um, and this song reflects wonderful theology with what we're talking about because basically what she does is there are four stanzas, and if you're paying attention to the words... Uh, then, then you'll get this. Sometimes we know songs and sing songs or hymns, and we don't even know what we're singing, we don't think about it. And that's a tragedy. But if, if you listen to the words, it's, it's amazing. It really hits on this. She's singing about how beautiful the body of Christ is. And the first two stanzas are talking about how beautiful the actual physical body of Jesus walking on this earth is how beautiful Jesus is, how beautiful the body of Christ is and what he's done for us. But then there's this subtle transition, and it's reflected in the music a little bit, I think, uh, as well, in case you're, to tip you off, hey, you should be listening and noticing this transition. Because then in the last two lines, it's the same words, how beautiful the body of Christ. But now she's talking about the church. Have you noticed that before? You listen to the words? And that's wonderful theology. Because, because it really communicates a unity that's very biblical. Because that's, after all, why Jesus calls the church his body. Because there is that mystical union between Christ and his bride. And this is what the song says. Starts out talking about the body of Jesus himself, the, um, the body of Christ. How beautiful the hands that served the wine and the bread and the sons of the earth. How beautiful the feet that walked the long dusty road and the hill to the cross. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. How beautiful the heart that bled, that took all my sins and bore it instead. How beautiful the tender eyes that chose to forgive and never despise. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. And then the subtle switch. And you see a lot of parallels, if you, if you think about it. How beautiful the radiant bride who waits for her groom with his light in her eyes. How beautiful when humble hearts give the fruit of pure love so that others may live. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. How beautiful the feet that bring the sound of good news and the love of the king. How beautiful the hands that serve the wine and the bread and the sons of the earth. How beautiful, how beautiful, how beautiful is the body of Christ. That's God's attitude towards his broken church. God is in love with his church. Are you imitating God in being, in acting out, being in love with his church?
Let's pray.